Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you quarantined Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we we have to continue this research uh, thick and through uh, with uh, all that's going on. You know, we need a proper distraction and looking back on history, not only for for context, but also for uh, for lessons and and you know trying to trying to pick up how to go about uh, uh, things right now. Um, you know, it it we're uh, it's just interesting because we are going to be talking about uh, just after the war and 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 uh, from from a World War II. And, and without further ado, uh, let me stop rambling and bring on uh, the author and Negro Negro League president Phil Dixon. How you doing, Phil? All right. I, I called you. I called you the Negro League president, but you're the Negro League historian. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, I haven't had my breakfast like we talked about <laughs> prior to the show. Uh, thank you very much. I was going to clarify that, but you took care of it. Exactly. And, and Phil, how you doing out there in Kansas City? Well, we're doing okay. You know, um, trying to stay safe and encouraging everybody else to stay safe. And uh, um, I was on the road doing a few. Um, baseball engagements and those have all been canceled so uh it's kind of nice to talk a little baseball here today to kind of give you a little um deflection from what's going on in the real world and uh, obviously i'm i'm a little uh slow this morning to get all my words together maybe uh some people could say that in general so i'm gonna i'm gonna let you give us a give our audience a little context and, and give all of us a little context for what we're going to be talking about today, and that's the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers in the United States Baseball League. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm going to sit back with this one because, uh, you know, as we've discussed, this is a, a part of baseball history, as well as um, Jackie Robinson coming into the major leagues that kind of gets glossed over anytime we're talking about this era. Yeah, it's uh, one of the uh, probably least understood and seldom discussed topics in the uh, baseball uh, uh, legacy of integration and uh, into the major leagues. And uh, generally when it does come up, it's uh, the story of um, Jackie Robinson when he came to speak with um, Ranch Rickey in August of 1945. Uh, Robinson thought he was being signed up for the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers which was um, widely advertised as uh, something that Branch Rickey was behind. And um, so that's when it's usually spoken of. But for the most part, few people know much about the uh, Brooklyn Brown Dodgers and the United States Baseball League that basically went from 1945 through the 1945 season, which is the war years in 1946. Right. So, what was the the idea for uh, for bringing this new baseball league to the foreground? Well, one of the things that the, uh, people don't discuss in, in relation to this is the name Gus Greenlee. And when we think of Gus Greenlee, of course, you think of the Pittsburgh Crawfords of the 1930s, and he basically came out of uh, baseball into his uh, activity with baseball around 1939. And he had the Toledo Crawfords. But Gus Greenlee uh, was an influential figure. Uh, he, uh, in, 19, in the 1930s, he pretty much resurrected the uh, Eastern Colored League, which became the 
uh, Negro National League, and then the new Negro National League, and then also um, things like the 14 doubleheaders in Yankee Stadium at Ebbets Field in New York. And also he was the uh, creator, creator and his team of the uh, East-West game, which was the centerpiece of black baseball for two more generations. So uh, Gus Greenlee is an important figure. So uh, Gus Greenlee had been out of baseball, so he decides he's going to come back in in 1944, and he announces that he's going to put the Pittsburgh Crawfords back together, and and uh, he started making overtures to uh, rival the Negro National League. And so that was Gus Greenlee. And so he's picked up uh, some cities like Detroit, Chicago, and found some willing participants who were wanting to rival the Negro American League and the Negro National League. Uh, the Negro American League, of course, was operating in the West. Now, those were teams like the Kansas City Monarchs, the Birmingham Black Barons, um, Chicago American Giants, Memphis Red Sox. And then, of course, the teams in the East were, you know, like the New York Cubans, the, the Homestead Grays. Um, so he wanted to rival those teams. And so he put this new league together. But, of course, the established Negro Leagues fought him and pretty much tried to force him back out of baseball. But he found a willing ear, uh, a person who was w- willing to listen to him in Branch Rickey. And so Branch Rickey kind of joined forces with Gus Greenlee. And um, I, don't, I don't know, you know, you could write a good story about um, Branch Rickey's motives, but he certainly teamed up with Gus Greenlee, and they were able to kick off the United States Baseball League in 1945. So it seems like Branch Rickey uh, was playing the long game with this one. I think so. Uh, of course, you know, I still look for documentation, but as you can see what happened after 1945, uh, that he certainly did. And, of course, uh, Branch Rickey himself in 1945, he was speaking – now, this is early in 45, and he began to tell the story of uh, how black ballplayers need to come into the national game. Now, he's already associated with the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers um, at, at this particular time, but he starts to tell, tell the story. And, of course, his favorite story was the story of a guy by the name of Thomas who uh, he had gone to Wesley, uh, the Ohio Wesleyan with, and Thomas, of course, couldn't stay in the same hotel and and Ricky supposedly bought him a cot. So he begins to tell that story for the first time and saying that when that occurred back around, I guess, I guess it would have been around 1909, 1910, somewhere in there, uh, Ricky said at that particular point he always wanted to get black baseball guys uh, into the major leagues. And obviously, you know, he, he's he's certainly glorified uh, about it, and and not to say that that the incorrect thing, but uh, you know, Branch was obviously a very uh, nuanced man, and he had a lot of different motives. Not and and not to say that the moral uh, uh, wasn't you know uh, the, the number one thing that he was thinking about, but he was also thinking about getting ahead of his competitors from the the fact that. Of course, if you, you know, bring, uh, especially, you know, he had to be delicate about it, and, and Jackie was the first one, um, but, you know, he was considering, especially during the war years, or uh, so I've read, you know, how much better he could have been had he 
you know, broken the color barrier with multiple amounts of, of black ball players prior to this? Well, the United States Baseball League, which uh, he was connected with, they were out there really looking for young talent. And so um, uh, with uh, Ricky, they were looking in the Caribbean. They were all over the United States. And then, of course, he's working with some of the greatest baseball minds uh, in, the, in the whole Negro League existence. For instance, the manager of his Brooklyn Brown Dodgers uh, was Oscar Charleston. Uh, the Philadelphia team was uh, managed by Webster McDonald. These are these are very famous names. Uh, the Chicago Brown Bombers were uh, managed by Bingo DeMoss. These guys were excellent players in their playing career, but they were also tremendous evaluators of talent. So not only did he have uh, his team of scouts for the Brooklyn Dodgers, he had a pretty impressive team of scouts coming through the new uh, United States Baseball League as well. You know, just thinking about it, there's really only been one movie I can think of that covered this stuff, and that's uh, it was an HBO movie uh, with Satchel Paige played by Delroy Lindo back in the 90s. I forget some of the other actors, but I, I feel like Delroy is probably the uh, the biggest name that was that was in that those those films. But this is really a story just overall of the transition from Negro Leagues to the majors that, that really just from a pop culture standpoint has never really been uh, discussed or, 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 or put up on the silver screen or the yeah, small oh, no. silver screen for that matter. Oh, nowhere close. Matter of fact, it's not even told very well in books. Uh, what I just mentioned about uh, Gus Greenman, his connection to the United States Baseball League and his connection to uh, Branch Rickey, I don't know if you can even go out and read that anywhere. So it's it's a really rarely discussed topic, but uh, it laid the foundation for Jackie Robinson, and um, and at the same time, the United States Baseball League was a pretty interesting league in itself. It only lasted two years, but uh, it, you know it had some great moments. Uh, for instance, um, I know in 1945, right around the Fourth of July. Uh, they had a big game there in Trenton, New Jersey. I think it was the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers and the Pittsburgh Crawfords. So uh, that day they brought out Jack Johnson, the former heavyweight champion, and then also Ike Williams, who was the reigning lightweight champion, and they awarded uh, Jack Johnson, um, you know, some awards. Uh, but, um, it, you know, they they would have some some moments like that. and uh, But for, for the most part, they said they were going to set up something different. And the thing that I think that they did was different was uh, typically uh, they would play in parks owned by major league teams and parks connected to the Brooklyn Dodgers minor league system. So, uh, for instance, uh, Gus Greenlee's team was called the Pittsburgh Crawfords. But, of course, you know the Dodgers had a form team in Montreal, and in 1946, the second year of the league, uh, uh, Greenwood was calling his team the Montreal Crawfords. Later on, he would switch back to the Pittsburgh Crawfords. There were a lot of that. But he was planning on playing out of Montreal, which is the connection, once again, to Branch Rickey and the minor league system of the um, Brooklyn Dodgers. Right. And a uh, quick tangent on that, it's, it's always been interesting to me, um, that even though 
obviously they were trying the experiment first in Montreal because they were a little bit more uh, tolerant at the time. Uh, Jackie Robinson made his his um, his debut in Jersey City. Yeah, good point. Good point. And you, you know, another interesting thing was um, the league itself wasn't incorporated until 1946. So it was incorporated in Cleveland. And the uh, Cleveland Clippers uh, team, they incorporated the Cleveland United States League Baseball Company. And, of course, you know, they struggled through the 1946 season. And, of course, uh, the integration uh, and the cherry-picking of the best to uh, a quick, rapid decline of talent and then, then by 40, I'm going to say maybe 48, 49, especially into the early 50s, a lot of the United States baseball talent and also Negro, national and Negro American title talent ended up in Canada. Yeah, I, I could see how that, that would uh, occur, you know. And, and I guess it, they, they tried to hold on. I know that um, there was a little bit more gimmetry after integration to try to keep the, the Negro leagues afloat, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's so. That's where you get people like Tony Stone coming in, female baseball player. The Indianapolis Clowns become even more popular. So, yeah, certainly certain, certainly had a share of um, promotional gimmicks to get people to the ballpark because it became a struggle, uh, probably greater than it had maybe since the Great Depression. So with the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers, they they also lasted two years, correct? And and how how um were how many games were at Ebbets Field? What how did they do? How were the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers? They they would play about six or seven games at Ebbets Field, um, and so they became functioning pretty much like the rest of the uh, uh, the Negro uh, professional teams. In other words, they they'd have that big game in Ebbets Field. But then the rest of the week, you know, they're going to be playing in Altoona. Uh, they're going to be playing in, you know, Zanesville, Ohio, and crossing the country. So they had to do the same activities. But also the people leading these teams, that was the way that they had, say, we'll say, cut their teeth in black baseball. So, uh, yeah, the Brooklyn Brown and Dodgers struggled through that first season. Now the next year when they come out, they don't mention Branch Rickey as the owner. So they had pretty much changed the, the ownership of the team. And so you don't hear Branch Rickey's name mentioned in the second year. And one of the big things they did in the second year is uh, they got the new owner, and I'll call his name in a minute, but the new owner wanted to try to get as many ballplayers as he could from the Brooklyn area, from New York, to try to give the team a home kind of home team following. Anyway, when that failed, uh, by, I say, about June of that year, he went out to purchase a player by the name of Herbert Doc Bracken out of St. Louis. And um, uh, in order to get Bracken, he bought the entire St. Louis Giants team, which, which was on the road, and made them the new Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. So the 1946 Brooklyn Brown Dodgers, you can't talk about them without talking about St. Louis baseball and, and the Negro League players that came out of St. Louis who were outstanding players by, by anybody's uh, ilk. 
you know, we always think about, you know, when you hear like the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers, you think to yourself just from the general baseball context that they would be only playing their home games in Brooklyn. But it seems like there there was some sort of barnstorm feel in many ways with, with all of this. Yeah, you know, the when you think of uh, the Negro Leagues, the Negro Leagues is itself is America's only truly barnstorming league. And because they couldn't make it by, you know, playing 80 games in one place, uh, it, it just wasn't enough money there to do that. But you could make a living out of this if you could go to small towns, uh, either industrial teams or they put a lot of money behind, you know, their, uh, maybe a team that they organized and they would bring in uh, ex-major league ball players and that thing to play for those teams. So that is the way you really made it, and it's called barnstorming. And without the barnstorming, none of these teams would have made it in the Negro National, the Negro American, or the United States Baseball League. So uh, when you think of the Negro Leagues, you have to think of a completely different animal, which to their credit is they're the only professional league in the history of America who made it on totally barnstorming. Yeah, that's fascinating. It it really is. And, you know, thank God that you are are a, a gentleman that is so fascinated by this stuff. You wanted to bring it to the foreground, considering that not enough has been written over the course of uh, of history. And, you know, with, with the names, going – to uh, to that, it, it's so interesting to me because, you know, I, I I appreciate when you have something original in many ways, like Kansas City Monarchs, Pittsburgh Crawfords, but you know you can't fault the marketing element of it. You understand why they're trying to connect. It's the same way that that the early NFL football teams took their baseball counterparts' names because there was already a market there for it, and you were trying to grab as many people as possible. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, it's, you know, it's no shame to the uh, Negro League game. It's just the way that you made it. And uh, if you didn't know that, you, your team didn't, didn't survive if you didn't have the uh, ability to go on the road. As a matter of fact, uh, I was reading a story uh, about the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. They were playing the Pittsburgh Crawfords, and the game started late because uh, one of their – they had a uh, – actually, it was the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers playing the Detroit Motor City Giants. That was they were original members of the 1945 uh, league, the Detroit team. Anyway, um, the game started late because um, the the Detroit team's cars broke down on the way to the uh, on the way to the uh, ballpark. Now, what's interesting is the Negro National, Negro American League, for the most part, they did not use cars nearly as often as uh, those teams that did in the United States League. So they were pretty much traveling by car. And, and here's one other thing I might mention, because people may wonder who was in the league in the different years. Well, when they first started the league in 1945, they had the Pittsburgh Crawfords, and uh, that was Gus Greenlee's team. Red Parnell was the manager of that one. Then they had the Philadelphia Hilldale, which uh, became uh, Webster McDonald's team. Of course, the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers team called the St. Louis Stars. Then they had the Chicago Brown Bombers. And, and these two, actually, this team didn't get off to, to a very good start, so I think they didn't last very long, which was the Patterson Black uh, Bombers. And then, they, of course, the Detroit team, Detroit Giants or 
Detroit Brown Bombers, that kind of thing. And and Joe Lewis was who extremely popular at that time. So and he was called the Brown Bomber. So you're talking about lending and borrowing a name, borrowing a name. How about Brown Bomber? Yeah. See, I, I that was a context that uh, that I did not understand either, and and um, I appreciate you enlightening me on that. It's uh, with, yes. with Patterson. Did they play in Hinchcliffe? They would play there. That's absolutely correct. And you know, which is which is very interesting. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please go ahead. No, I was going to say Patterson is an interesting story because the the New York Black Yankees used that as their home field uh, in the 1930s, the mid-1930s. And um, uh, there was a guy by the name of Nat Strong, and Nat Strong operated uh, teams in the East as a booking agent, and that's one of the places that he booked heavily into was uh, Patterson. Of course, Patterson had the Farmers, too. It was a a white uh, team that he booked. And they would play many rivals there in that same uh, field there, Patterson, New Jersey. So when you think about Patterson, you can't you can't rule out Nat Strong, who dies in the spring of 1935. But for the most part, he put Patterson on the map. And what they're talking about today is Patterson being one of the last home fields where uh, a Negro League had a team uh, is is true. But you cannot forget Nat Strong's contribution to making all of that happen. It is uh, fascinating over there because, and now correct me if I'm wrong, I heard it's the only national landmark in baseball. Is that correct? Mm, I'm not sure what you mean by that, but they pretty much that, do that's it. That's one of the reasons why it's still, one of the reasons why it's still standing there is because it's protected. Oh, yes, it definitely is. And they've got new funds to uh, put the uh, field uh, back together, which I think is a great um would be a great and, and remarkable achieve, achievement. You know, I went to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and there they had a field called Brees Stevens Field, and it was kind of a, a horseshoe-shaped diamond. They played baseball there. But they've taken that field there, which is right off the Capitol there, and um, they've revived that park. And now uh, that park has concerts, and it's better shaped for soccer, so they have soccer in there and uh, – you know, they did a great job, and I can see Patterson doing something very similar to that. I, You know, I've been driving around as a Lyft driver, uh, as I may have mentioned before on this show, and uh, it, my, my time had brought me to Patterson a lot uh, over in New Jersey. And, you know, it's it, well, another thing, uh, what's so interesting about that area over there right next to the stadium uh, is that, well, for one, you know, the stadium's the most run-down part of it. Right next to it is a great Larry Doby mural. That, that is as, as put together as anything, even if it's, a, it's, it's currently in disrepair. But it's also next to what I believe is the second largest waterfall east of the Mississippi, and that is the what? Great Falls, and, and there's a national park right there. So many people, and probably because of the stigma of, of what Patterson unfortunately became, after industry left, uh, Silk specifically, uh, nobody knows about about this unbelievable natural, uh, 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 you know, oasis of of uh, it's it, it's really and it's it's unbelievably beautiful and it's right next to the ballpark. Yeah, you know, I 
you know, I was wanting to come to Patterson. I don't know if I will make it this year. You know, uh, I recently released a book on the Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, which took place after the 1934 World Series. And, of course, they played in Patterson at that field. And um, there was little conversation about that. But there was lots of conversation about the Negro League team. So in this particular case, you have Dizzy and Daffy and their All-Stars, and they're playing the New York Black Yankees in Patterson. So uh, at that field. So there's a lot of history there. And uh, I think it's a great project, you know, to tell you the truth. So you just made it even greater by telling me about some of the things that are close by. I think it would be fabulous to see that park resurrect and become a good community tool. Uh, you know, New Jersey has a lot of those random places that you, you you know, flies under the radar from the historical perspective. And, and obviously, with it, when it comes to Thomas Edison, you know, there, he, he's kind of a, at this point, obviously, he did a lot for uh, America, of course, and, and there's a reason why his, his um, a laboratory is a national park. Uh, but it's probably, it's in West Orange. It's hardly visited, uh, uh, you know, whether, whether it's Patterson or, or whether it's uh, things like the Thomas Edison Laboratory. You know, this stuff with New Jersey and, and you know, kind of similar to what we're talking about with, with uh, the history of the Negro Leagues, all this stuff flies under the radar. Oh, yeah. You know, America is loaded with outstanding history. That's one thing that I can tell you, you know, clearly. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did a 200-city tour. And uh, when I visited cities, and I drove to all these places, so – uh, but when I visited cities, I would take in the other sites that were there. And so I'm, I'm going to cities where uh, African-American teams barnstormed. So you had the baseball, but this baseball is not in a world by itself. And all these great monuments and where people are buried, and you, you, just, you just don't know till you actually go to this town, these towns, what's there. So, I mean, I was in Bethany, Missouri, and there's a, a giant mural of Babe Adams on the wall, who was born there. And you mentioned Babe Adams. Most people, unless they're a serious baseball fan, don't even have any idea that this guy won three games in the World Series around the turn of the century for Pittsburgh. But in his hometown, he's revered. And that's what you're finding in Patterson with Barry Doby. And, and, but this happens all over the country. Yeah, it, it's really a, it's it's excellent. I'm I'm happy to bring some light to it, uh, albeit you know on on a a, a smaller level. Uh, <laughs> you know, not to say that we're list, you know we're listened to by thousands of people. Although one day, Phil, one day. So uh, within the the last the three minutes that we have, I'll I'll ask you this. You know, we know Satchel, we know about Josh Gibson and, of course, Jackie Robinson, um, Cool Papa Bell, uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's plenty of other names. But I'm wondering, who do you think, had there not been, you know, as, as, as much as baseball at the time liked to pretend like there was never a, that, that, that it wasn't a gentleman's agreement to not let black ball players into the major leagues, of course there was. Um, who do you think would have been in the in, in the, like just pull pull a name out of your hat from 1900 to 1947? Other than the names that that are the most popular, who do you think could have broken 
the the color barrier or would have been one of the first uh, players that had somebody like Branch Rickey, you know, been allowed to in in like the the early 30s, who do you think would have uh, would have been that play uh, that player? Excuse me. Well, if you go from 1900, man, there's there's literally oh I could think of literally hundreds of players. This this may sound incredible, but if you go right right at the turn of the century, Rube Foster. Uh, to my estimation, was the greatest pitcher in the world right there at the turn of the century who did not get a chance uh, to play in the major leagues. Um, one of my favorite players who has not been spoken about very much is Grand Home Run Johnson. <clears throat> this guy hit 60 home runs during the dead ball era in the 1890s. 60 home runs, unheard of at that time. <laughs> so, uh, another one that could have just walked through. Um, you have people like Saul White, and even if you want to even go back further, you got Bud Fowler. You know, these are guys who are excellent team players, and they're talented players, just not getting a chance. And overall, just good people. And uh, it's unfortunate um, that we have to talk about the history in two separate histories, but these are certainly players who would have made an impact on the game and certainly uh, would have made baseball better had they been given a chance to play. And that is, you know, the unfortunate part about it is the fact that, you know, baseball is constantly being haunted by its ghosts. We're constantly talking about, about the stats and, and uh, you know, comparing the numbers. Um, but, you know, basically until – and really you could say – Considering, you know, a team like the Yankees, unfortunately, were a little slow, as well as I believe the Red Sox were a little slow to integrate themselves, you know, it really wasn't until probably 1960 that you can say, you know, and and that really is like the modern era cutoff in many ways, where you can really start to understand the numbers better, where, where because of integration and because it's all coming in, you know, as much as we revere uh, Jimmy Fox, Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, people like this, it, their their numbers should have an asterisk next to it. And, 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 you know, that's a controversial thing to say, but at the same time, there was an entire group of people that they were not competing against. And, and you know, I know that Babe definitely, when it comes to barnstorming, certainly had some, some fun with some Negro League teams. Yeah, you know, uh, even right there in New York City there, uh, the New York Giants, when they put five black ball players in their starting lineup, and so now you have more blacks in the starting lineup than you have whites, and that was in the 50s there. Um, teams like Boston, the Boston Braves, didn't want to have maybe three or four black players because they were worried about their team, as they called it, getting top-heavy. And so there was a lot of politicking. and um, Unfortunately, I can't say that it's totally eradicated today. So, um, and I and I know when I was in baseball working, you know, working in baseball in the '90s, there were still issues that I would hear players talking to me about. And so, um, uh, we still have a lot of work to do in America, and uh, and certainly in our sports and our sports reporting. And my my new book on uh, Dizzy Dean, pretty much. Uh, points out how the media was handling what they were seeing, especially when it came to 
African American athletes uh, playing a dominant role over a white star that they had built up in the major league. So, uh, but that's what that's these are discussions we need to have moving forward if we expect anything to change. We need to have open and honest discussions about the past, and it'll help us to discuss things in the present. Well, I think whether it's coaching or even the front office, there's still a, a, a humongous lack of of uh, black talent there. Uh, there, you know, um, there's talent all over the place, and, and America's just full of talent. And um, if you know, if you think of baseball in the last 50 years. Uh, you know, and just kind of addressing what you talked about earlier uh, about the statistics and things, uh, who we call the all-time greats and that thing. But if you took the black ball player out of the major leagues in the last 50 years, do you think the major leagues would be better or worse? Oh, man, you mean if we took them out of the last 50 years? Yes. Oh, worse. I'd have to say, and, and you know, it was worse prior to that, right? Yeah, yeah, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, based on, based on what we have seen in the past 50 years. And so um, uh, prior to that, you know, you could say so-and-so was the all-time great and everything like that, and you can't take anything away from a good ball player. But at the same time, if you put it in real historical perspective, probably – there were a lot of major league ball players who shouldn't have been in the major leagues had it been integrated. Right, and and that's that's a, that's a great point too. Yeah, there would have been less. Uh, uh, the yeah, uh, uh, and and that's probably one of the things that they were so scared of is the fact that there there were white ball players that wouldn't have a job because there were better black ball players out there. And and it's interesting, you know, framing it that way because at some point I think with looking back on baseball history and just as, as it became the new normal and it, and it should, it should have never, you know, this is how it should be where you don't even think about this context, but ball players like Ricky Henderson, Eddie Murray, Rod Carew, Ken Griffey Jr. You know, it, it, when, when you frame it that way, if, if some, like this, this wasn't that long ago, this is, no, this is less than a hundred years ago. We're talking about Jackie Robinson integrating. And it, it's great that that it, it's something that we we don't we don't consider as we sit there like last year watching Dominic Smith walk off for my Metsies to end the season. In that moment, you're not thinking, "Wow, there, there's a time where he couldn't have even been here." Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And uh, and for the first 50 years of, of what we call our most celebrated baseball history. Uh, if you go back to the turn of the century, and that's the baseball pretty much for the most part. When I read history as a as a young person, that was the history I read. Uh, when you talk about Jackie Robinson, that was almost like a, a different era. But when you went back and you studied the era of the Babe Ruths and the Walter Johnsons, um, no mention of African-American baseball players, not even of the Negro Leagues when I was first uh, starting to do research uh, back in the 60s. So, uh, things have really changed, and, um, of course, they'll continue to change, and we need to continue to tell these stories. And the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers is one of those stories that needs to be told. Maybe if I get around to it, I'll tell that story, too, maybe in the next book. That would be amazing, and it, it would certainly help uh, my research for the, uh, 
you know, Bedford and Sullivan, the story of Brooklyn and its Dodgers. And, and it, uh, you know, I'm always trying to get as many different angles, especially angles that, that do not come to the foreground immediately. So I appreciate your help with doing so, Phil. And before I let you go, I'd like to pass it over to you for a shameless plug. Tell the audience where they can find you, uh, what you have written, and, and all, all of the above. Yeah, um, of course, um, you can go to uh, my Facebook page. Uh, you can put in Negro League author Phil S. Dixon, D-I-X-O-N. You can always find me there. Uh, or just Google my name. I'm always uh, trying to make appearances. Um, I'm gone most weekends. Not not right now, but unfortunately. But, you know, the day will come hopefully when I can get back out again and do more appearances. So, yeah, definitely there. Uh, and feel free to look me up. And, um, of course, I have um, eight or nine books out there. My latest book is the Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, and it's about 14 games after the 1934 World Series, each game its own unique adventure about Dizzy and Daffy Dean playing the greatest African-American baseball players in existence, and you get a chance to see what might have been. And Dizzy certainly saw it. And um, he had lots to say, and it's all in that book. Well, I look forward to uh, reading it. And right now, obviously, there's a little bit more time, even if I, I unfortunately, uh, cannot necessarily self-quarantine like uh, everybody else, considering that I have to deliver food around New York City to people who can quarantine. But without shameless plugging myself, um, (laughs) I want to thank you, Phil, uh, so much for joining us. Uh, today and, and I, I, you know, uh, again, just to give it context of of what we were, uh, uh, you know, of of this whole coronavirus. You and I, there's a a good chance that we would have been doing this podcast in person because I was supposed to be driving through. So uh, to everybody out there, stay healthy, stay safe, stay strong, and uh, you know, I, I I hope we can get back to normal soon so I can come visit Phil out in Kansas City. Well, I look forward to that meeting and. Uh... We'll just um, kind of bide our time until that that time, and we can certainly talk some more baseball. And, heck, I'm going to be doing more research. I've got a little more time on my hands since I don't have to commute an hour, let's see, an hour, half a day, and I can turn that into a baseball research time, and, and uh, we'll get together. So I look forward to it and yep. uh, keep, uh, keep up with the good work and uh, keep talking baseball there and letting everybody know about the wonderful things that Brooklyn contributed to baseball history. Hey, oh, oh, can I share Thank one? You. Can I share one yes, more thing? Yes. Can I share one more thing? Uh, you've got Please. one of our come, coming from Kansas City. One of our great names there uh, was uh, with Brooklyn uh, early on. It was this Casey Stingle. So uh, I grew up in uh, one of the neighborhoods yep. where Casey Stingle didn't live too far from. Uh, you just reminded me of another thing that I'm going to have to to make sure to visit. I'm sure there's some. Some things uh, regarding Casey Stengel, some some monument, maybe not maybe not a statue or anything like that, but is there is there a commemorative birthplace uh, plaque, if if anything? Oh, not that I know of. That's a good point. Um, not that I know of, and and I know uh, Zach Wheat. Zach Wheat. Now I I live for I yeah. grew up in, I was born I was born in Kansas City, Kansas. Of course, Zach Wheat played for a local Kansas team before he signed up and eventually ended up in Brooklyn. 
Yeah, and, and Zach Wheat, uh, a Hall of Famer uh, from Brooklyn Dodgers history. It, there's, it's, it's so there's so much context to create, and, and and just to give the audience a little idea of where I'm coming from, I'm focusing when it comes to like uh, writing the pilot and writing the treatment. I'm focusing on 1937 and 1957 with some flashbacks eventually. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, some flashbacks okay, eventually okay. of Charlie Ebbett uh, making Ebbett's Field, uh, creating Ebbett's Field. That's, that's kind of what, one of the things I want to do with going back to the earlier part of the era. Um, but but one, one thing about that is that Casey Stengel, when Ebbett's Sickly, you know, other than Zach Wheat, was, was – a Brooklyn star, especially because of just how how bubbly of a of a a personality he had. Right, right. Well, yeah, you know, well, we could get a good conversation going on that too. Uh, <laughs> you know, when when I talk about the Negro Leagues, a lot of people know me from the Negro Leagues, uh, but you know, sometimes I don't get a chance to. Uh, well, often I don't get a chance to talk about my depth of baseball knowledge. So. Uh, yeah, I would love to talk about Casey Stengel too. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll, have, well, we'll I, have I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm getting. I know that Marty Appel. I've had Marty Appel on here, and and he wrote a biography, I believe, of of Casey Stengel. So I, maybe I need to loop back around. And we can all have a conversation. Uh, but I've also been talking a little little uh, plug to Bud Payton. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. But he every day he finds and posts new Casey Stengel photos from his entire career, whether it's, it's, you know, with the Dodgers, with the Pirates, with the Giants, or wow. I believe he managed for, for Boston, the Boston Bees or Braves. He managed, of course, for Brooklyn. He managed in the Pacific Coast League and then the Yankees and the Mets. And, you know, we, we don't have much time left, but I, I've, I, I know that the Yankee fan uh, reveres Casey Stengel, but still looks so out of place whenever, even if he won as many championships as he did with the Yankees, there's something that, that feels so much more Casey Stengel seeing him in New York National League uniforms. You, you know, this man, this is kind of ironic that we ended up on Casey, but um, Casey Stengel, when he managed the Mets, the first opening day uh, pitcher, black pitcher for the Mets, was a guy by the name of Sherman Roadblock Jones. And Sherman, the first time I put on a baseball uniform, Sherman Roadblock Jones was my coach. Oh, wow. That's, we're we're going to have to loop back around to that because we're going to get cut off soon. So, Phil, <laughs> okay. we right. are going to be on We are going to be on the uh, uh, another podcast uh, sooner than later, considering that we got some content to fill. So, again, right. thank you so much for joining us, and, uh, you know, you're welcome back anytime. All right. Well, thank you, and you have a great day, and stay safe. And and you as well. And thank you to all for listening today. Uh, join us on Friday when we will have our 100th episode with a very special guest who has been on the podcast plenty of times before. Thank you all out there, and stay safe and healthy. Let's get over this.